Uh, I want to welcome up. Uh, last week we had Duncan Helwig uh, share his story, and he shared about how he came to Christ. And now Duncan is helping lead up this marriage ministry, the A&E marriage ministry. And so this week I thought it would be good to have his wife, Alicia, come up and share her story about how, what God's done in her life. So if you'll welcome up Alicia Helwig with me. Now, Alicia and Duncan just dedicated their little baby Levi yeah. this morning, and he was super cute, and he was good. Uh, yeah. Pastor, he didn't scream at all. When I was baptized, oh, I was, pay, I, I was in, baptized as an infant because the church I grew up in. But anyway, I screamed my head off. Oh, no. I screamed and screamed, and the, the, the pastor's like, oh, this one's going to be a preacher someday. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all you, Alicia. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a little nervous, of course. I, I, I think you guys hear that every week. I haven't ever shared my testimony in front of a, a church setting, just individually. But um, it's, it sounds a little boring at first because I was raised in a, um, I was born into a Christian home. Um, my family had um, experienced a, a miraculous he- healing from my grandmother's um, mom who had cancer, and they went to Melody Land um, to get prayed over, and she was healed from that. And um, she had no circulation in her leg. And um, as soon as they walked out of there, she had war- uh, warmth in her leg. And um, the Lord really used that to just bring my, um, my family, who was just called, you know, Catholics, but just really never attended church. So by the time I was born, I was the first um, grandchild born into a family of five. Um, my family was already saved. And um, I was the, the first grandchild, and um, everyone was ecstatic when I was born. I hear stories all the time from my aunts and um, my uncle. Um, and um, there was a lot of joy. I was, um, I was, um, when I was born, my mom and my dad had um, been married, had gotten married, of course. And they, um, um, he wasn't saved, and he started going to church, um, and... You know, my mom and my family, everybody says it, it was kind of like a little uh, hook, you know, for him to go to church because he liked my mom and started attending. And he knew that the only way he could go to church is if he, I mean, if the only way he could marry my mom is if he um, was born again. And so he, you know, um, played the part and even got baptized and they got married. Then I came along. And um, about two months after I was born, um, they, my dad um, would leave and he would, um, you know, cheat on my mom and um, get DUI tickets all the time and party. Um, he comes from a big family of about 10 siblings and um, they're really big party people and still to this day. And um, so that, that, uh, that happened. So after so many times of bailing him out of jail, my grandparents um, said, that's it, we're not going to help bail him out anymore. And... Um, you either straighten up or that's it, you know, just leave. So he um, decided to just, you know, walk away from the marriage. And um, he um, would come and visit um, sometimes. Um, but I remember it was until I was about two years old, the last time he came. Um, he wouldn't really talk to me or spend time with me or really play. He would just kind of go in and kind of try to check my mom out and kind of um, get her back. and. So my grandmother reached an agreement with him and said, okay, well, we won't ask you for child support if you just never come back again and you never come and um, visit, if you give up your visiting rights. And he said, oh, sure, yeah, you know, I'll be a free guy again, you know, I won't have that over me anymore. So 
I remember that day, I, was, I think I was only two, but I remember um, him walking out, and I, was, I thought, wow, I'm never going to see him again. And he just walked away, and I never um, saw him again. But throughout my childhood, um, you know, I, we attended church, and um, I always grew up hearing things about my dad and his family, how they were no good, and how he just pretty much um, tricked my mom and, into marrying him, and um, he, how he just wanted also um, his legal status, because my mom's born here and he wasn't, so he kind of just wanted her, his legal status um, to be... Um, to become a U.S. citizen and all these horrible things I would hear about him or be careful out in the streets because your dad might kidnap you and so all this fear all the time that he might just come and take me, abduct me and just be careful for the Sandovals, that's my maiden name, because they just might come and take you. So it was kind of traumatizing for me because, you know, I was just always looking over my shoulder, okay, make sure nobody's around and he's not going to take me and um, this horrible man. And um, then my mom, she was involved in children's ministry. She, um, she went back and got her GED, and um, she was involved in children's ministry. And she met a minister there at a church. And um, I remember him also. Um, he, was, uh, he had a band with his brothers. There was four brothers. And um, they had all been in jail, had really rough lives, and had been in like Chino State Prison for rape and all kinds of other stuff. And um, so... He, you know, um, pursued my mom, and, um, you know, everything was great because he was, his life had changed once he met the Lord, and um, he courted my mom, and I was about five years old when they remarried, so um, that happened, and, you know, everyone was happy. My mom found a great Christian man, and um, I had been raised with my grandma, my grandparents, because they were helping my mom raise me until that point. And then everything changed. I, had, I was five and then moved out from my home and into, you know, this other new life, you know, where my stepdad comes in. He wants to be, um, you know, a father figure for me. And to me, my grandfather was my father figure. And it was a difficult situation because I think he wanted to lay down the law. And um, it was hard kind of because I didn't trust him. And, I, you know, I, I never had any other um, male role models in my life, uh, really. And... Um, so I think it became like a control issue for him, and maybe because of his past, because he had been in prison for rape before. But um, I didn't know any of this, and um, I just started getting, um, <clears throat> experiencing a lot of abuse from him at a really young age. He, he um, the way that they took me from my grandma's house when, um, when they wanted me to live with them was they brought the cops, and that, that caused a big scene. And um, that kind of started the relationship between my my grandmother and my uh, mom, kind of a up and down kind of a relationship, and everyone in the family was pretty furious about it, the way she went about it. And um, so after that, we moved to, they bought a house up in Paris, Riverside County, and so I was completely away from all my family, my aunts, my grandparents, my cousins, and um, they would tell me a lot of things like, okay, your, your grandmother would pray that you would die, your grandmother doesn't love you, your grandparents... They don't love your mom. Just a lot of, um, I think, brainwashing and a lot of emotional abuse. Um, he would tell me that I was going to grow up and be nobody, and I was going to end up pregnant before I got married, and um, just a lot of, um, you know, talking down to me and um, hitting me. I wasn't allowed to come out of the room. If he, he had his own business, so he was gone a lot. But when he would get home, if I was out in the living room with, with my mom, he would... Um, make sure I would get a, a beating. Um, if I grabbed a, a, a banana without asking for permission, 
um, I would get a slap and you know I was really just like a, a stranger in my in our own home and then my siblings came along my half siblings and they were adored they were really um, loved by by him and my mom so that's when I really noticed the difference because he would tell me okay um, there's a chain of love in this home it's first I love your mom then I love your sister then I love your brother and you're like after the dog or something you know it was just really crazy um, for a little girl um, to hear that and just my self-esteem was completely down completely I, I remember I used to walk with my head down all the time and I wouldn't talk I was just so fearful of everybody um, I was I sometimes would just meet some somebody maybe at school like a teacher and just cry out inside but I was always afraid to tell anybody of all the abuse that was going on because um, since he was a minister we would go to TJ to the uh, orphanages and a couple times I went and you would see all these kids um, pretty much like locked in um, uh, cribs all these cribs everywhere and they're about five um, five-year-olds babies eight-year-olds and they're just in these cribs and it just smells so horrible just they would go to the bathroom in the cribs and I just thought wow that's he would tell me okay if you ever tell anybody of what happens at home you're gonna go they're gonna send you to an orphanage so I thought wow this is better than having to live in that kind of environment so I just I was always just afraid of anybody finding out um, the bruises the bruises that I had on me from him beating me um, were always an excuse of me falling or maybe on in the jungle gym at school or the dome it was metal back then um, me hitting myself or something because of course um, neighbors would question his behavior and question the um, the bruises on me um, it became worse when um, it just progressed the abuse like um, he wouldn't it, it started you know with the beatings and then it would be from not eating for a whole week um, to being locked up in my room to um, to being um, punished in the carpet just for like not asking for permission to eat something or so, something so minimal um, to having to um, to um, sit on all fours like a dog pretty much for like eight hours a day until I would have like scabs in my elbows and my knees and just all kinds of um, abuse um, from from them um, he would tell me okay I'm the next thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna build like a big wall uh, around the whole property and that way no neighbors see what I do to you and I'm just gonna you know beat you and beat you and beat you and I thought wow that's that's terrible I would just I was just so scared all the time and um, it came to the point where um, I think the um, the teachers were kind of noticing certain things so um, I remember one night I was in my room and he told he told my um, my mom okay I want her out by tomorrow and she said well just let me um, cook her a special dinner before no I want her out and I was thinking where am I going so um, to my surprise the next day my mom talked to me and she said okay um, things are really bad here and I was about 10 years old and um, I just don't want you to suffer anymore and I just um, I spoke to your grandma and you're gonna go back to Orange County and I thought oh no I'm gonna go back to the lady who wants me dead that this is horrible and I haven't seen them in years and so um, so I was kind of terrified about that but then you know living in this situation was also terrible too so I just didn't I didn't want to lose my mom I didn't want to lose my um, siblings and um, so I cried and um, regardless of my um, 
you know, my petition to her, she ended up dropping me off um, here with my grandma. And that was a really tough process because I didn't know my aunts, you know, then again, and my grandparents, and I kind of uh, rebelled a little bit. They ended up um, putting me in a Christian school because they thought, okay, this will help her. And it actually did, um, my teacher, one of the best teachers I had there, um, she really reached out to me and helped me with my emotional issues and kind of, I think she could see through me what, what, what was going on with me and she um, reached out to me and that was the first person I ever told my story to. I never told my grandparents until later in life. And it was years until I saw my mom again. Um, my stepdad forbid her to come and visit me. So I really felt abandoned again. Like I felt abandoned by my, my, my dad, my real dad, and then again by my mom. And then by my, my grandparents um, later on when they took me from them. And just a lot of instability in my life. Um, I, um, I remember being in um, church services where my stepdad would be preaching or he would be um, playing the guitar and ministering. And I would think, wow, God, he just seems like such a different person up on stage. Like, I, I just pray that you would just be, you know, um, touching him and changing him right now as he's up there. And sure enough, we would get out of service and he would be a different man and he would already be threatening me in the car. And so just, um, you know, it was kind of something that really affected my, my teenage years, just my self-esteem. And um, of course, it, it, um, it made me very standoffish to, um, to guys because I was like, no, I'm not going to get hurt, no way. Um, that's not going to happen to me. You know, all the men in my life have either left me or beat me or something. So that's it. I'm not going to, um, you know. And later on, we'll share about that with when we got married, how that um, how all those past um, hurts in my life really hadn't been dealt with until I really finally let a guy into my life, with, with, which was Duncan. And um, so anyways, um, you know, I just, all of that abuse and everything, when I was about um, 16 years old, um, some of my friends from church um, told me about uh, volunteering at, in Children's Church, and I said yes, I, I went ahead and started helping out with them, and I just was really able to see so many um, different um, kids in our church that needed the help, and I could see different um, different family situations where there was maybe like a combined family with stepmoms or stepdads, and just my heart would really ache for them, and I would think, wow, I could kind of see what they're going through and feel it because of my situation. So I think throughout the, my teenage years, the Lord really used me to to uh, volunteer in Children's Church, and then um, I felt a calling um, when I was about 19 to to go to Bible school. So I went and did that, but and and helped out with youth. But um, uh, I think through it all, what I could really say is the only thing that really helped me um, go through all this abuse and all this pain and and all this rejection, abandonment, and having that instability in my home and my family was God because at uh, six years old um, my uh, there was a an evangelist that came and spoke to my church and I was and it, it was a children's service and um, I remember my grandmother would always tell me about the Lord and how he loved children and how he died for our sins and Sunday school teachers always telling us that and I would also think, okay, well, you know, I want to be, you know, my grandmother that night, she said, oh, do you want to be born again? Do you want to receive the Lord and ask him to forgive you for your sins? And I said, yes. So, 
went up and he prayed for me. And little did I know that within six months, my life would completely change and I would just um, have a new, a new family, a, a stepdad and a mother. And um, through it all, I remember being locked up in my room, going through all um, the abuse and crying and being, um, you know, going without eating for a week straight and just pleading to God. I remember I had a, um, a canopy bed, um, a cabbage patch canopy bed, and I would just, um, you know, go up there and pretend I was singing or something because I loved singing when I was little. And just um, asking the Lord, okay, through this song, Lord, I pray that you just um, free me from this because um, I just can't do this anymore. I, I just, I don't know what to do anymore. I, he won't love me. No, nobody loves me. And I'm just a, tell, a terrible little girl. And um, I remember just always feeling a peace afterwards, like, okay, um, just delight yourself in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. So I always held on to that promise of God rescuing me one day and changing my situation and being used for him. And um, I didn't realize until later on as a teen because I would just always think, well, why did my parents abandon me? Why um, Mother's Day was always so hard for me. Father's Day was always so hard until a few years ago for me because I always longed for that. I always longed for to have my mom and my dad. And, and um, I always just focused on what I didn't have until... Um, you know, just really realizing, wow, you know, everything that I went through, the Lord was with me through it all. He didn't allow me to, you know, go and in, get into drugs or alcohol, maybe, or into, um, you know, being promiscuous in my teenage years or anything. He really saved me for his glory. And I think it, through it all, I was able to see how um, there's such a need in, in, in church to serve and and to, um, to serve those little children, like how I was ministered to as such a young child and how um, those teachings from my Sunday school teachers really were a witness to me as I was going through such a hard time in my life later on. And, um, and just, you know, even receiving the Lord at such a young age, I think, really helped me go through all the difficult times in my life. And um, sometimes I think we just overlook those ministries or, or, or the children of the church, and, and you just never know what they're absorbing. And, now I really thank the Lord that um, even though I don't, I, I don't have a good relationship with my mom, she's been in and out all the time. I think she feels guilt or, um, you know, when, when I got married, she was hurt that I didn't acknowledge her first before my grandparents. But to me, my grandparents were, have been there for me. My aunts have been there for me. Um, I met my dad two and a half years ago, finally, um, through, I was, I was working at my church and um, my pastor's father-in-law jokingly told me, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find your dad um, in Mexico because my dad, he has um, a business where he, he lives in Michigan six months and then goes to Mexico six months. And so he said, um, I'm going to go to the phone book when I get to Mexico and I'm going to look your dad up. Sandoval, right? Sure. Yeah, whatever. The next week I get a phone call from him. He had found my dad and um, it was like 30, 30 years later um, he had found him. We kind of reconnected. He called me, and um, but he, his new wife, um, she was, she had no idea that I existed. So a couple times she would actually um, grab the phone from him and and um, treat me kind of like if I was another woman or something, like go crazy. So I didn't want to cause problems within his marriage, but um, that's kind of been an issue. He came here to meet me a couple years ago, met 
met Sarah. I didn't have Levi, um, Duncan or Levi yet. Met my husband, and I was really able to see what the Lord really spared me from because his, um, he's just pretty much intoxicated with um, alcohol, like, all the time. I went and visited him in Corona, and he was drinking while I was driving in the car, and I didn't know what to do. I was alone there with my little girl, and I didn't want to be disrespectful, but, you know, he was just just a really crazy kind of um, guy that hasn't really grown up. And later on, I found out that he's even in the, he was even in the mafia. He would smuggle AK-47s across the border. So just all kinds of things that I think the Lord really spared me from um, being raised in that kind of environment because they're just, um, all my cousins in that side of the family, you know, have um, children with multiple fathers and just a really ungodly environment. So I just, um, my testimony just today is, is really, you know, that um, through it all, at such a young age, I just really held on to the Lord's promise. And, um, of course, you know, rebellion creeps in sometimes. But, you know, if the Lord really has a stronghold on you, I think at such a young age, we're just able to go through everything and, and um, just hold on to, to his hand. And he'll get us through everything that comes our way, no matter how difficult or how terrible it is. And that's it. Thank you so much. Now, you guys start this Friday with A&E, right? Yes. So, uh, and just sign up in the back and that's yeah. all? Yeah, yeah, sign right. up in the back. We're, we're excited about that ministry starting up for, for married couples. Thank you so much. Wow, I did not know that. And uh, I would have never guessed that about you, Alicia. You have such a sweet, kind servant's heart. Uh, it's just uh, amazing what God's done in you and kept you from. Well, tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 as we continue on through the gospel of Mark. And um, <clears throat> as we're getting ready to go through this chapter, I was um, reminded of a story I read about Flight 652 from JFK from uh, New York to Chicago. And uh, if you know about JFK, the, the runway is a little bit short. Uh, well, it's, it's not a very long runway, but at the end of the runway you have water. And uh, the, the plane was loaded. They were just waiting for the pilots to get on board. The pilots came on. But there was something very unique about these pilots. Both were wearing really dark glasses and walking seeing eye dogs into the cockpit with them. And, of course, the, the, the passengers kind of like, okay, they're playing a joke on us. That's funny. So the plane, uh, plane begins to taxi onto the runway. It begins to, to accelerate. Jets are picking up. And, you know, that's always the favorite part about taking, at least for me, is taking off. Uh, I, I always love taking off on airplanes. But uh, the, what the people are realizing is the plane's moving faster and faster and faster. The nose isn't coming up. And they're starting to stress a little bit. Eventually, it, the stress turns to screams, and then immediately... Uh, the plane pulls up really quick and takes, makes a real quick, sharp takeoff up into the sky. And in the cockpit, the, the pilot, one pilot turns to the other and says, you know, Bob, one of these days they're going to scream too late and we're all going to die. Um, you know, <laughs> today's scripture is all about being able to see. And not see physically, but see spiritually. Can you see Jesus? And that's really what we're going to see as people encounter Jesus in this chapter, is who do you really see Jesus as? Who is he to you? And, uh, and so let's get into our text in Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. In those days, 
When again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples <clears throat> to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, uh, this is a miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it was just two weeks ago, we did the feeding of the 5,000. And there are some who are tempted to make this the same miracle. Mark's just kind of repeating it. But there are some distinct differences in this miracle. And first of all, I just want to point out, if Jesus can raise from the dead, I'm totally cool with any of these miracles in the New Testament. People have problems with miracles. And I tell them, I, I teach an apologetics class at the School of Ministry. And I always tell them, guys, don't argue about the miracles and validity. Just argue about the resurrection. If someone rises from the dead, they can do all the miracles they want. Because if I can believe that, then I can definitely believe these other things. And if Jesus can feed 5,000, and remember when we looked at that text, there were actually more than 5,000. If he can do that for 5,000, certainly he can do it again. There's no stopping him. But there are some distinct differences in this one. The first difference I want to point out to you is that he says the crowd had been with him for three days. Remember the first time they had just come back from their mission trip. The disciples had gone on a short-term mission trip. They had just come back, and the crowd kind of followed along as they skirted the, the shoreline in a boat, and they got out at a desolate place. But this time, the crowd had been with them three days. Second thing I want to point out is that this time the disciples themselves have the loaves of bread, and they have seven of them and a few fish. So we, we get a little more versus the five loaves and two fish that they received from a young man. And lastly, after he, uh, or two, two other things, after he does the miracle, we see that they pick up seven baskets. Anybody remember how many baskets they picked up the first time? Twelve. That's right, twelve disciples. This time they pick up seven baskets full. And the last thing we see is that, that he, after he sent them away, he gets in a boat with the disciples. Remember before he made the disciples get into the boat and send them to the other side, and that's when we see Jesus walking on water. So th this is absolutely, to me, the facts are different. It's a different miracle, a different situation. But there are some things here that are of like nature. The first one is Jesus does the miracle because he has compassion upon the people. That's what spurs him to do the miracle, his compassion for the people. Remember the first time we saw him feed the 5,000, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. And so he took care of his sheep. But I think there's a little more to this story. Jesus in Mark's gospel, Mark is moving us towards something that happens in this chapter. And we're probably not going to get there today. But it's that great confession 
of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you remember going back to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus did the miracle, put the disciples in the boat. They're freaking out. They think they're going to die. Jesus comes walking out at night, and, and then they're like, what? It's Jesus. And they call him over after they thought he was first a ghost. Then he gets into the boat, and, and everything just stops, and they're amazed. And after that part, it says, for their hearts were hard. They did not understand about the loaves. And so as we move closer to this great profession of faith by Peter, and, 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 and move closer to the cross, we're going to see that he's amplifying these things. He's putting the disciples in places where they can see clearly who he is. And so we're going we're to see a contrast tonight. So Jesus does this miracle. He feeds the 4,000 after teaching them and being with them for three days. But notice what the disciples say. The first thing they say to Jesus is, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. Now, you and I would think, well, if I just saw, uh, you know, not too long ago, if I saw, even if it was two years ago, if I saw Jesus multiply loaves and fish, I think maybe I'd approach the situation differently. Maybe I would pop up and say, hey, Jesus, um, I don't know what you want to do in this situation. Maybe you want to multiply some loaves and fish, or, or maybe you want me to run up to the store, whatever you want me to do. But, but uh, what, what would you like me to do? How, how do we want to handle this situation? I would think that I would think that way, but you know what? I'm a, I'm a pretty sad man. I'd probably be like, how can we do this? This is impossible. we got all these people here. And that's where Jesus is teaching and testing the disciples. And we're, we're just like this. We, we come into situations in life, and we're going, oh, how am I going to deal with this? What am I going to do? Oh, life is falling apart. Or whatever the case is, whatever the trial is, God delivers us. And then later on down the road, oh, what am I going to do? It's terrible. I'm in his worst trial ever. Well, didn't God deliver you from the last time? Yes, he did. But will he do it this time? I don't know. But he will. And he always does because he's a faithful God. And in Mark's gospel, we pointed out at the very beginning when we started the gospel, Mark, that it mirrors the exodus in Egypt quite a bit. And, and, and we'll see that more and more as we, we go through this. But what do we see in the exodus? We see Israel being provided for and then crying and complaining. And then Israel being provided for and then crying and complaining. But, but not just 12 disciples. We're talking a million plus people with Moses. And they're, oh, we have no food to eat. Well, God's going to provide this manna from heaven, this bread come down from heaven. Every morning, except for the Sabbath, we're going to go out and just pick up bread. Food is just going to fall from heaven. We're just going to pick it up. Well, how do I know he's going to provide it for the next day? Well, hasn't he provided the last two weeks? Yeah, but what about tomorrow? No, just pick up enough for today, except for the Sabbath. We pick up twice as much that day, but for the day before the Sabbath. And then they say, okay, well, we understand that God's been faithful. He's been providing us this manna. But what about meat? We want some protein. Okay, here's what God's going to do. He's going to send quail into the camp, and he'll provide for your needs. And sure enough, he did that for 40 years. God sustained Israel in the desert. And for 40 years, Israel was tested. And I should say, actually, Israel tested God as they would complain or go, oh, I don't know if I can believe in God this time. I don't know if I can trust God this time. 
And so here the, uh, the disciples are, well, how can we do this? And once again, Jesus shows them that he is the answer, that in him will the answer be found, and in him we will find nourishment for our souls and nourishment for, for our lives. And so uh, after this time, Jesus gets back into a boat and he travels across to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, Dalmanutha is in the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, and we also think it's the same place called Magdala. And Magdala is where Mary of Magdalene was from. That's part of her name. She, oh, this is the Mary from Magdala. That's, that's where we'd recognize her from. So he goes back over to that side. The first time he fed 5,000, it happened on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he crossed over to Bethsaida. Uh, and actually, remember, they, they ended up falling a little short of their goal. But um, So this is a different uh, um, situation. Well, once the disciples and Jesus r- arrive at the other side, they come across the Pharisees. Mark 8, verse 11, if you'll turn there with me. So the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and again and, uh, again, and went to the other side. And uh, so we have this encounter with the Pharisees. And, and we know that the scribes and the Pharisees were constantly coming after Jesus. But let me just read one verse to you real fast from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. And I, I didn't put it in the slides. But this is what Isaiah 35, verse 5 speaks about prophecies about concerning Messiah. Then the, bl- uh, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Once again. Then the eyes of the blind, blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's Isaiah 35, verse 5. Now, if you remember, John the Baptist, when he was in prison before he was beheaded, he was kind of having some doubts, some second thoughts, and, and wondering, well, was, that, was that mistaken or was that really Jesus? Who came? Was, is he really the Messiah? So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus about it. And Jesus' response was very simple. Tell John, he told his disi- John's disciples, tell John, uh, the eyes of the blind are open, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Just go tell him that. And what Jesus was referring back to is these prophecies concerning him. That you know what? I am the Messiah. The blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking. The deaf hearing. But here we have the Pharisees coming to him saying, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Now, it it seems almost innocent. In fact, the Scriptures give them provision to do this. In Deuteronomy 18, there's the test of the prophet. God actually puts forth that, hey, if you're not sure about a prophet, test them. If someone claims to be a prophet, we'll test them. Ask for a sign. See if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, kill the guy. It's harsh. I, I, that's one of the things I challenge LDS with when I talk to the Mormons uh, is what the test of the prophet. Have you tested Joseph Smith? He says he's a prophet. Um, I don't encourage, obviously he's already dead, but I don't encourage him to go kill anybody. But it's one of the things you do. You get them to test the prophet. Did, he, did, he, did what he said come true? Is the temple, has that been built in Missouri? No, it hasn't. But here he says it. How do you reconcile that? 
What about the, and you kind of lay through those prophecies. But the scriptures give us provision to do it, but yet Jesus here in his response to these Pharisees is, is one of exasperation. He, he says, um, oh, sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, and he, it, the scripture tells he sighed deeply in spirit. He's, he's absolutely troubled by them asking for this sign. They're not asking to see him do a miracle, by the way. They're not asking for some power. You see, they've already decided where his miracles come from, if you remember. Remember that in the very beginning of Mark, they say, oh, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub or by Satan? They've already decided his power is from Satan. He's doing all this work by the, by the hand of Satan, the power of Satan. So therefore, if you want us to believe you, show us a sign. And what they want to do with Jesus is trip him up. They want him to do something so then they can judge it among the scribes and the Pharisees and they have the right to put him to death. That's basically what they're asking for. They're asking for a reason to put him to death. And he is exasperated by this. He sighs deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I'm not going to give it to you. I am not going to give it to you. See, they're totally blind. They seek a sign. Oh, I want a sign. I want, I want God to speak down. For, have you ever met somebody like that? When you, when you try to share with them the truth of the gospel, well, I don't know about that. I, I don't believe God exists unless God opens up the heavens and speaks a word to me and I'm not going to believe it or whatever the case is. They, I, I want a sign. I want a sign. I want a sign. But the problem is they're not seeking truth. We're encouraged to, to seek God. To knock and the door will be opened. If, if we just seek God, God will reveal himself to us. But the problem is a lot of us don't really want truth. We want what we consider to be the best fit for our lives. We approach God like a buffet. Like, oh, that looks good. Not touching that salad. That looks good. You know, oh, God, I want my God to look like, um, well, I like the whole idea of the meditation and the Eastern spiritualism, so we'll take some of that. And, and I like my God to be really forgiving of my sins, but I want my God to hate other people's sins. I, want, I definitely want my God to hate child abuse, but to, to love sexual immorality. Or I want my God, God to, to like these parts of sexual immorality. Or I want my God to, to, to love tax evasion. I want my God to, and, and we start building up our own God and I'll tell you right now, I, I know what happens when you eat buffets. Um, I went to, uh, one time I was in Arizona visiting, and we had to eat a buffet for lunch. We went to, oh no, this is what we did. We went to Denny's for breakfast, and we were with family. And they took us to Denny's for breakfast. Then we went up to Sedona, Arizona, and we ate Denny's for lunch. Okay, that's a mistake right there. But it didn't stop there, it didn't end. We got back into Phoenix, and we ate a hometown buffet for dinner. Man, my wife and I were so sick that night. It was just like, oh, don't ever want to eat those places again. When you, when you approach God like a buffet, you're going to just get spiritual indigestion. You're just going to be sick, and you'll be absent of all truth. And we want to see Jesus. We want to see what the truth is. So going on to verse 14, Jesus leaves these Pharisees aside, tells them, nope, not going to give it to you. And verse 14, we see this. Chapter 8, now they had forgotten to bring bread, um, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said said to them, do you not yet understand? Interesting interaction here in the boat. Jesus gets into this boat and he warns the disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What, What are we talking about here? Well, we want to be careful. Now, by the way, these two words here, beware. And watch out. He gives us two words, and both are imperatives. Both these two words are imperatives in the Greek. And, and it's one of those things where could, could he emphasize it anymore? He says, orate, watch out. And blepate, beware. Okay? Jesus is being very serious about these two commands. And they both have to do with G- the disciples seen correctly. Beware, watch out. Like I said, this passage is all about being able to see. And as they're in the boat, the disciples are like, okay, he mentioned leaven. Now, Jesus is warning them about this leaven, this, these, these, these little things that the Pharisees and the scribes are putting into people, these little ideas that are causing unbelief. Now, I love Christianity because the best part about Christianity is the Bible can pretty much stand on its own. So I, I can basically say, oh, all right, well, I'll take up challenges and I'll put the Bible out there and boom, open it up and, and I'll seek it out and I can find out truth and find out, deal with passages or whatever. Whatever people throw at, at the Christian Bible, it's amazing how it always comes out on top. Absolutely incredible. Like I said, I teach an apologetics class, so, which is uh, how to defend uh, the faith. And I, and I love teaching that class because I don't have to... I don't have to make up ideas to defend something. It, it defends itself, the Bible. Well, people will tell you things, and one of the things that I'll use for an illustration of this is currently, right now, there is a huge movement in the church to, to say that it, uh, you know, the church should start embracing same-sex marriage. The church should be all for it. And the issue is about, you know, they, they talk about bigotry, and you know what? I am not a bigot, and, and I love homosexual people the same way I love bis- or, uh, heterosexual people. It, it doesn't matter to me what your sexual orientation is. I'll still be friends with you. I'll still talk to you. I'll still go to coffee with you. I'll still hang out with you. That doesn't bother me a bit. Do I agree with same-sex marriage? No, I don't. Why don't I agree? Well, because of what the Scriptures say. I hold to the Scriptures. Well, now within the church, there's this movement to say, well, you know, the Scriptures don't actually say that. And churches are grabbing hold of these falsehoods, these lies, saying, well, yeah, well, it'd be a whole lot easier within our communities if we didn't have to stand on the Bible. We could just say, yeah, well, you know, if if this, and by the way, some of these arguments for the Scriptures, they, they misuse the Hebrew and the Greek. They'll say, oh, the Hebrew word in the Levitical law is not, it doesn't mean that not to, to have these relationships. It's actually talking about idol worship. That's not true at all. 
The Hebrew word being used, just so you know, because you'll come across these arguments. The Hebrew word for it's an abomination. It's taught, it, that word is used for idolatry. It's used for sexual immorality. It's, used, it's, it's an adjective. It's explaining this is an abomination. Okay, don't do this. This is wrong. Uh, then they'll say, well, the Greek doesn't say that. Well, that's also not true. The Greek is very clear. The problem is lay people don't understand Greek and Hebrew. And the American church, for some reason, thinks that if someone quotes Greek or Hebrew, they must know what they're talking about. Don't buy into that stuff. I'm serious. The, the, the Bible translations that you have in English are very, very good Bible translations. In fact, the Greek, when, when I look at the ESV and the Greek, half the time... They nail it spot on. I don't even have to say anything about it. Um, the only reason why I study in the Greek first is to pick up on nuances in the grammar. Just little nuances that maybe, maybe the, the, the text doesn't come across or maybe I don't pick up on from the English reading. That's it. They're just nuances. So don't buy into these, these ideas when people say, well, that's not really what the Bible means because in the Greek or the Hebrew it says this actually. Uh, most of the time that stuff is just totally bogus. So I want to encourage you, beware of the leaven of these false teachers. That's how Jesus is applying that. These people that put falsehoods into your mind, falsehoods into your life, and try to get you to bite onto it, try to get you to receive some bit of it. Another example of this that I saw personally, I went to a youth ministries convention years ago. I went to, a, it was the youth, worker, youth specialties convention. Big convention. I was encouraged to go to it for years, and it was the first and last one I ever went to. Um, I and one of the things about that that convention, and by the way, I think that convention uh, they hold it in different places around the country. I think that convention did a lot of damage to the church as a whole in America, and here's why: the theme of that convention that year was all about postmodern ministries. And that, hey, if, we're, if the church is going to survive, by the way, people always say this, if the church is going to survive the new movement in the world, it's going to have to change. Oh my goodness, don't buy into that. <laughs> Jesus has kept his church just fine for thousands of years, and he's going to continue. The church will continue to endure. It'll continue to grow. The kingdom of God will move forward, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay? Now, we have, the, we have the ability to take the Scriptures and put it into the context of our culture. Not change our church to, to the culture. We don't adopt the culture and, and, and change the Scripture to be in, the, in that. No, we don't, we don't do it that way. We help people understand the Scriptures in the context of our culture. And so at this Youth Specialties Conference, one of the things they were talking about is postmodern worship. And by the way, this is really where the emergent church came up out of. All these youth pastors went back to their home churches. Man, we got to change things up. Kids don't worship with the lights on. Everybody turn out the lights, put on a couple candles. You know what? We need some rocks. We got to change everything. You know what? People don't wor like to worship actually in church. Maybe let's have an art studio in the back. They can just draw pictures in the back and the rest of the church can worship. Or let's, let's change this, let's change that. And they started working it. Hey, we've got to make it taste good for everybody. There's got to be a flavor for every person because it's postmodernism. And at this conference, I did a prayer walk. This thing was absolutely sickening to me. Because as I got into it, I realized what I was doing. It was a mixture of new age mysticism built into the prayer life of the believer. That was the goal. You'd walk up to a station, 
And, and I, as I got through three of the stations, I was like, that's it. I'm done with this. And I threw it down and walked out. Um, I, and I, I guess I could be one of those people that's like, uh, like uh, I kind of, I, I'm not one of those people that goes away silently sort of thing when, when stuff happens. Um, I, I got kicked out of a college class one time for basically, in short, telling the teacher he was li- a liar and lying to everybody and that was it for me. Um, he, he was basically saying Jesus and Muhammad had the same views. And anyway, we got into it and I was gone. So uh, anyway, um, and I try to be respectful. But anyway, I, I let everybody know, man, you guys need to get out of here. This thing is awful. It's not scriptural. And you need to get out of here. But anyway, the whole thing was about mixing in New Age mysticism, feeling your way through it, and, and, uh, and bringing that into the church don't do that. Beware the leaven of these false teachers. Beware the unbelief of the Pharisees. Beware of this stuff. Watch out for it. Don't let it permeate in your life. Here's another way we can apply this scripture. Beware. Watch out for the, the view of the media and the influence it has on your life. Beware. Watch out. You know, anytime things want to get accepted in our culture, they begin to expose it for shock factor in the movies and TV. And, and the first time we see it, it's like, oh my gosh, that was shocking. And then the next time we see it, still shocking. Then we see it again and again, and then it becomes everyday life. And this is just how life is. It's kind of like that idea of boiling a lobster. You start out in cold water or a toad. You know, you start out in cold water. It has no idea what's going on. Eventually, you heat up the water till it's dead. <clears throat> so beware. Watch out of this leaven. It'll permeate your entire life. It'll cause you to go away. It'll cause you to become blind. And so Jesus challenges his disciples on this, but his disciples miss it. <laughs> they totally miss it. And I can identify with them. I'd be right there with them. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, man, Jesus just talked about leaven. Did we, we didn't bring enough bread, did we? We got to, oh, we forgot the bread. What are we going to do? Oh, John, that was your job. What are you talking about me? I thought it was your job, Peter. And, and they're going on about leaven. And I can just imagine Jesus in the boat. Are you kidding me? Come on, guys. <laughs> like, really? Don't you have ears? Don't you have eyes? This isn't about bread. It's not about us going hungry. What happened with the feeding of the 5,000? Well, you multiplied a bunch of loaves and fish. That was pretty cool. How much were you left over with? 12 baskets. What happened just a little bit ago with the feeding of the 4,000? You multiplied a bunch of bread and fish. Wait a minute, five, multiply, multiply. And how much were you left with? Seven baskets. Are you guys catching on here? Are you, guys, are you disciples catching on to me, who I am, what I can do? This isn't about bread. This is about who I am. That's why I'm warning you about the, 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 the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the, the, the Herod. Remember, Herod thought Jesus was a magician. Or John the Baptist reincarnated. The Pharisees think he's Satan. Watch out for that. And so as, as he asks them these questions to help them come back from their discussion about who forgot the bread, he says to them, do you not yet understand? Now, this is the next important part and the last part we're going to get to tonight. Next week, Palm Sunday, 
Or wait, no, we have two more weeks. Next week we're going to get into Peter's confession. But let's look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Amazing. We're having this discussion. The Pharisees are asking for a sign. We get into a boat. The, Jesus has this discussion with the disciples about this yeast of the Pharisees and, and the yeast of the leaven of Pharisees and leaven of Herod. And now we're, we're getting out of the boat and the first thing he encounters in Mark's gospel is this blind man. The blind man comes to Jesus. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, this is different. Jesus doesn't do the same thing he does every other time. What does he do? He takes the blind man by the hand and he leads him. Man, by the way, I know that this is a miracle and God, Jesus is literally doing this, but I can't help but see the illustration right in front of us. Jesus takes the blind man and leads him. He leads him to a place where he's going to heal him. Doesn't God do that with us? Doesn't he take us when we're blind and we can't see how we can get past this or how we can deal with this abuse or how we can do that? And if we will allow him to, he will take us by the hand and he will begin to lead us out of our darkness. That's the amazing thing about our loving Father. And so Jesus takes him and he leads him out. And then he does this weird thing. He spits on his eyes and lays his hands on him. Now look what he asks him. Do you see anything? And the man's response is, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Man, this is a perfect picture of the gospel entering into us. It's a perfect picture of what the disciples are going through. They, all these times where Jesus says, did you not understand? Are your heart still hard? Are you not getting this? Are you not putting the picture together? Or for us, before I was a Christian, things didn't look the way they are. I know that when I finally gave my life to Jesus Christ and surrendered myself and I repented of my sin, when I gave it all up to Him, something amazing happened. It was like I could see clearly for the very first time in my life. It was like I could understand the Scriptures. And not only could I understand them, but I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted it more and more because I wanted its life-changing power in me. I just was hungry for it. And I could see things clearly. I remember going to movies or seeing movies that I had previously seen and being like, oh my goodness, why, what I, why would I ever like this movie? Why would I think it's funny? Because I was seeing so clearly for the first time. And I really think that this is, this is what's going on with this man. Jesus touches him. How do you see? Well, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. It's not very clear. It's a little fuzzy. It's where the disciples were right at that moment. We know you're Jesus. We know you've got this power, not totally sure about how I'm supposed to look at you. A little fuzzy. And then he touches him one more time, and his eyes were open, and he restored, and he saw everything clearly. And they sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus told him, just go home and don't enter the village. Part of it is, I think, because every time Jesus had done a healing, uh, then 
people would go crazy, and they'd all come around and swarm him, and it was a little bit, it, it would, it would uh, force him to not do what he came to do, and he'd have to go around or go up, retreat out to places, and he wanted to continue to minister in that area. So he tells the blind man, go down, uh, don't enter the village, just go home. But can you imagine, if we'll merely just give our hand to the Lord and let him lead us, how he will clear things up for us, our perspectives. We will see trials very differently. We will see worship very differently. We're going to see the Bible very differently. Right now, things may be a little muddy for you. Things may not be totally clear. You may be challenged in in whatever you're going through in life. But I encourage you, take the hand of Jesus. Take it so you can see clearly. Let him give you sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, dear God, for these wonderful miracles you did that we can still look at today and apply to our lives. Lord, I ask you to lead us. God, I know that everything I've ever done in my life and on my own seems to end up getting me in trouble. But Lord, everything you do through me, it's amazing. So Lord God, I surrender it all right now to you. Take me and use me, Lord, for your glory. We love you, dear God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.